Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> you know, those of you who know me know that I grew up in an evangelical Protestant fundamental community. <laughs> if anybody ended up on the floor, we'd call 911. <laughs> Anything to keep the Holy Spirit at bay, right? <laughs> our, our theological statement about the Holy Spirit was, Seek not, forbid not. <laughs> Which is half biblical. And uh, so the hope was if you didn't seek, nobody had to forbid in the first place. So <laughs> it's so funny. Um, great to be with you. A uh, message from all the other Oregonians said to pass it along that it rains in Portland 365 days a year. <laughs> That's our joke because, you know, California and Oregon, we have this kind of uh, com- competition thing going on, um, like North and South Dakota, you know, it's all that kind of stuff. Oregon Ducks and, you know, whatever. So, um, Thank you. I uh, appreciate being here. I'm gonna I want to read you something that I got uh, via the internet and uh, where else? And um, and we're gonna have. I'll tell you a story or so. Maybe we'll see. And then we are gonna open it up for questions. And like I said to the folks yesterday, I don't do Q and Q and A. I do Q and R because I'm Canadian. And. Uh, <laughs> And we know we don't have all the answers, so we do questions and responses, and um, so we will have some Q and R, but I thought you'd find this interesting. It's, um, it kind of captures a few different things, and I love this kind of stuff. Um, one of the beautiful things about the shack, and if you don't know already, it was not intended to be published. Um, the whole point was to get it done for Christmas as a gift to our children. And we have six kids. Our youngest is 20. Our oldest is 33. We have seven grandbabies, uh, six and under. And um, the shack was written on the train to one of my three jobs, trying to get it done because I had nothing else to give them that year for Christmas. And uh, so the first 15 copies that I printed it off as a depot did everything I ever wanted that book to do. Everything past that is God's sense of humor. <laughs> and, uh, it's, it's, you know, we're in a relationship with a God who loves participation. Um, this is a God who has never done anything by Himself. Right? There's always been three. And uh, we're made in the image of a God who's never done anything by Himself. Which means that the heart of everything is relationship and other-centered, self-giving love. And, uh, yeah, it gets furious and angry at that which hurts and damages the one, the ones that, that God loves. But that's part of it. That's part of relationship. You know, we live in a world full of sadness. And, and the right response to things that are wrong is anger. It's the right response. Right? There, there are lots of things in this world that should just piss us off. I mean, r- seriously. Because they're wrong. Right? And... Um, and it's not that then anger then becomes another weapon for violence. It becomes a motivator for participation. And, um, and there's lots of things that really make me angry. You know what's really crazy is that um, I don't worry about it. It's not your performance that makes you valuable. So, uh, you know, I grew up very disconnected. Um, I'm uh, very um, ended up living in my head because everything below my neck was destroyed in terms of the shattered soul, you know. 
And uh, you can't pick what emotions you want to shut down. You kind of generally shut them all down. And in the process of the healing of the heart, which is a process and takes some time, you begin to feel again, which is kind of a bummer. And uh, because it's a little overwhelming in the journey. Um, but you know, here's the a couple things that just come to mind inside that little statement. One is that as you begin to feel, you begin to feel a depth and a breadth that you were incapable of before, and that's hard. Because when you are inside people's stories, you can feel them, right? Now, I'm a religious kid, so I have this uh, kind of bent DNA towards performance and, you know, shame and stuff. And um, one of the things about becoming healthier is you become more sensitive to smaller incremental deviations. And if you're a religious kid, that increased sensitivity will make you feel bad. That'd be like you've done something wrong. I mean, in the movement of wholeness, you actually become more sensitive to smaller deviations. And that's evidence of healing, right? And if, we're, if we tend to be hard uh, on ourselves, let alone anybody else, and we're always hardest on ourselves, um, for those of us who are shame-based anyway, which is the majority of us, I would think, um, if we're hard on ourselves, uh, these little smaller sensitivities will rise up and begin to accuse us when they're actually evidence of healing. Right? There's been movement in our lives. Every one of us. We are not the same person we were 15 years ago. And if you're like me, 15 years ago, you know, I knew what God was doing and I used to tell everybody. Right? <laughs> yeah, things have changed. One thing about getting older is you, be you become much more aware of one, your mortality, and two, how much you don't know. And... Uh, it's, it's pretty awesome because children don't have to know everything. You know, it's when they become adults that they have to know everything, and especially if they're religious adults. So, um, <laughs> hey, religious people always had further to go than everybody else, right? That's what Jesus said. So, took me a long time. So this, you'll like this. This, um, I, get draw, I get emails a lot. I've probably gotten um, 100,000 plus from all over the world about how the shack and crossroads have intercepted people's lives and hearts and stories and and they're pretty stunning um, and uh, so I and I get uh, people send me stuff and um, this is one of my favorite all time and uh, it was on a website that they were doing a review of the shack and they loved the book and um, so they would get feedback and this came in from someone whose name on the web is Aram 77 Right, and uh, so I, I don't know if it's male or female, uh, Aramac, um, which could be reversed, or I don't. Who knows who this person is? Uh, they said my name is Aram, and um, which I would think was probably a girl named, you know, Mara. I would think. I just kind of think, but I'm just totally guessing. So my name is Aram. I just finished reading the shack. I then went online and happened across a bunch of people arguing about it for what looks like a few years now. <laughs> that by itself is worth the whole thing, right there, you know? Because I don't know if you knew this, but it's a bit, a bit controversial. And, uh, you know, there's a bunch of people out there that haven't read it, but they're experts in it. And, 
And uh, they really don't like it. I just want you to know that those are my people. <laughs> just so you know. I, I totally know who these folks are. They're my people. I grew up with them. I know exactly how they think and I know what they're afraid of. So, um, you know, we were part of the community of people that where it was always easier to be right than to love. And uh, so, you know, there, I've had great responses to this. And, and you need to know something. People ask me all the time. So, you know, is it difficult when people are so upset uh, about the book? And I go, no. Because, you know, ambivalent people, they don't even care. At least angry people care. Right? And so when somebody comes to me and they're mad about this, I'm at a place in my life, finally, it took the whole 50 years plus to get there, but I'm at a place in my life where I, I know right off the bat, they're not coming to tell me about me, because they don't even know me, right? This is the way they know how to tell me about them. They're bringing what they got. In this moment, this is what they got. And they're coming to tell me what makes them afraid, what makes them angry, what matters to them, right? They're not coming to... If I think they're telling me about me, we're in for a war, right? But I know better. I know they're not telling me about me because I already know who I am. It's kind of, I'm kind of like the man born blind, right? Who's been the beggar on the side of the road and Jesus comes, slaps the mud in his eyes and, and leaves without even telling him his name. Really bad evangelism, let me tell you. And uh, I mean, think about it. No sinner's prayer, nothing, right? He doesn't even know who the guy was. You know, I mean, how many conversations has he heard with rabbis talking about him along the road? Probably a bunch. And this guy just doesn't talk about him as if he's a third party. Like, hey, I'm right here. But he hears him spit. <laughs> and then suddenly, plap. In his, you know, underlying in that story, if you look at it, and this is John, I think, chapter 8. And it's one of my favorite stories ever because I love stories anyway. And... Um, but in this story, it appears that this man had nothing in his eye sockets. He had vacant sockets. They were The skin was just enfolded across. Because when they start talking about it, they start talking about the fact that this has never been heard in the history of the world, right? So it's not just somebody with eyes who was blind. This person had nothing there. And part of the creative participation of Jesus with the Holy Spirit is to use dirt and spit and it's a creative act right and what happens is it forms into eyes and he doesn't even know until he goes to the priest and presents himself to wash it off you know the whole thing's got all this humor in it but the deal about that story is that he doesn't know who the guy was and he can see so he goes back and everybody's sort of freaking out. And they say, well, it looks like him. But you can, you know, if he just had eyes and now he could see, they go, yeah, it's him. But with vacant spaces there, it looks like him. But, you know, so the religious folks are all up in a fervor about this thing. And, and, uh, and so they come to him and they, <laughs> the whole thing's hilarious. And a whole chapter in John's gospel is spent on this story. So it's kind of significant. But, but in this thing, the religious folks are coming and they're asking him all these questions. Now, he's been a beggar who's blind, which is kind of a double whammy in the Jewish culture because you have a defect to begin with, so you're, you're outcast already, right? And so he's been just alongside the road and it's due to alms and things that he's even survived. So he's, no, he's not educated, right? He's, he's, he's this guy. 
And so now the theologians are coming and saying, so tell us, tell us what happened and what this means. You want to talk to me? You talking to me? Right? It's like, really? So they start asking him questions that gets him involved in... Uh, yeah, this is unusual, isn't this? Right? And, and he's going, I, I don't know what to tell you, but I was blind. You know, all the theology in the world is not going to convince a person who is blind and now can see that they can't. <laughs> Serious, right? And you watch him go through this whole process in which he starts with, well, there was this man. And then they start saying, well, what are you saying? Is he, you think he's a prophet? He goes, you know, he might be a prophet. I mean, in their argumentation, they're actually moving along in his journey of faith. Right? And, and finally, they, they say things like, bless God and tell us, you know, what's really going on here. And he, and he says this awesome line. You don't want to become his followers too, do you? <laughs> Which means he's moved to the place where he got through profit and now he's, there is something more going on here because they're convincing him because of their argumentation that this is way bigger. right? And now he has moved into, I want a relationship here. And you know what they... What they <laughs> this is how they try to motivate him. If you don't do what we're telling you, we will excommunicate you. <laughs> How would that make anything different from where the morning started? You know, I never was communicated to begin with, right? So what are you going to do? You know, and uh, and it ends up where he's his parents are brought in and they're going because they don't want to be excommunicated because you know they managed to stay inside the community of faith, but they're asking now the the religious leaders are saying, "Is that your son?" Well, he looks like him. You know? <laughs> Do we have to say one way or the other? You know, so they're really after the. I, it's a stunning, it's a stunning story. Well, he gets excommunicated, and he's out there wandering around, and Jesus finds him. And he, and Jesus says, "So what happened?" He says, "This guy, I want to know him." Right? And you watch this unbelievable journey in terms of relationship, and you go. This is so not what's taught in the school of evangelism. You know? Because Jesus is like, he trusted the Holy Spirit inside this person. How weird is that? I mean, we know that the Holy Spirit is not good at convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, so obviously needs our help, right? So, I mean, look how long it's taking her to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So, people always get upset because I use female you know, pronouns with regard to the Holy Spirit. I'm just being biblical. <laughs> Genesis chapter 1, verse 2 introduces Ruach, the Spirit, and it's feminine. Just so you know. Now, I know, I know more believe that God is, uh, the Holy Spirit is a woman as opposed to the Father who's a man. All of maleness and all of femaleness is derived from the nature and character of God. All of maternity, all of paternity is derived from the nature and character of God. Right and uh, and lots of feminine imagery for uh, for God in Scripture, but Ruach is feminine, so I have no problem referring to the Holy Spirit as she any more than I have of the Father as He. You understand? So um, so all of that kind of stuff is sort of uh, you know 
when this book sort of become the, became this phenomenon, which it is. The book is a phenomenon, right? Fifteen copies did everything I ever wanted it to do. Keep that in mind, because all of this, I didn't ask for it, right? I mean, I'm thrilled to be a part of it, but I didn't ask for it, and I don't need it. You know? I'm thrilled to participate. I am. It's stunning. Very painful sometimes, because you get inside people's great sadnesses. They trust me because they trust Mackenzie. You know, they trust the authenticity of his anger and his losses, right? So, you know, my family, the religious folks, they have more trouble with this than anybody does, right? And most of them haven't read it. Um, I had a whole denomination ban the book in Australia. How cool is that? Come on. Happened to anybody else here? I don't think so, right? Like, come on, are you serious? So Baxter Kruger, who wrote The Shack Revisited, which is a stunningly beautiful book um, about the theology that's behind the shack, Baxter and I went to Australia. Well, eight months before we went to Adelaide, this denomination had announced from their, at their national conference, there's a new book out. You need to communicate to your congregations that it's heresy and that they should not read it. Right? So, eight months before we get to Adelaide, the pastor had gotten up in his church and he had said, folks, there's, there's a new book that is coming out and we as your leaders have determined that it's heresy and so don't read it. Well, two weeks before Baxter and I get to Adelaide, they had a pastoral change, right? Um, and they had come afternoon tea, come meet the new pastor and his wife, and we will have Q&R, right? So... Uh, during the questions, somebody asked in the congregation, have you read anything good lately? <laughs> now, obviously the new pastor's wife had not got the memo. <laughs> Leave it to a woman, right? So, she... she thank God, it's the only reason we're saved. So, um, so she whips the shack out of her purse, right? And she goes... This is the best, best book I've ever read. How many of you have read it? And three quarters of the congregation put their hand up. Right? Serious. There is a verse for this. Where the law comes, sin abounds. You may not know this, but there's a pastor up in the Northwest who's, who I like went full out on national, internet, whatever, and had bazillion hits where he just slammed the shack, right? I mean, now it was obvious he hadn't read it, but, but he slammed it big time. Do you know who Donald Miller is who wrote Blue Like Jazz? Yeah. D- Donald's a friend of mine. He lives in Selwood. I live just outside of Portland on the southeast side. And Donald calls me up and he says, do you think if I called this brother and got him to ban my next book, he would? Because I could really use a bestseller. <laughs> right? How cool is that? So, okay, all of that in one sentence, come on, all right, so, yeah, you go for it. You know what, children do not require any reason to validate their existence. That's what that song was about, right? You don't require any validation by your behavior or anything else, anything to validate your existence. You have always been worthy of being loved. That didn't end when you became an adult, just so you know. (laughs) You know, in the grand scheme of things, you're just a baby anyway.
so, um, okay, my name is Aram. I just finished reading The Shack. I went online and found a bunch of people arguing it, about it for what looks like a few years now. People are calling it heresy, a dangerous book, and warning people not to read it. Why? I normally never comment on these things, but being an unbeliever, yes, that's right, I am not a Christian, I thought it might be useful for some of the theology-spouting authorities to take a moment and look at what I, not a churchgoer in any way, have gleaned from this little book. And then ask yourself, because I really don't know much about the Bible, is anything I learned leading me in the wrong direction, perhaps all the way to the burning lake of fire that so many Christians love trying and, and scare other people who are non-Christians into believing by? If this is the case, then I guess you're right, and based on what you believe, people shouldn't read the book. For me, I don't believe fear and rules are the answer, and I never have. This has been my main reason for my avoidance of the church. However, if you preach love and forgiveness through whatever means conveys it the best, whether fiction or otherwise, my heart begins to open up a tad. It makes me actually want to pick up a Bible, perhaps, and maybe read a little bit further. Teach love, my Christian friends, because people like me, we don't respond well to fear tactics, and we definitely don't get turned on by arrogant leaders who think they've got it all figured out. So below are 57 new ideas I took away from this little book. There are 57. Let me read you the first 12 so that you get a feeling for what this is like. Okay? One. The differences between God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit were used to help Mac break his religious conditioning. Not bad, right? Two, you don't get brownie points for doing something through obligation. Three, life takes a lot of time and a lot of relationship. Four, listen to this. How free are we really? Family genetics, social influences, peer uh, or personal habits, advertising, paradigms, peer pressure, propaganda. Freedom is an incremental process that happens inside a relationship with Jesus Christ. Not bad for an unbeliever. Five. When all you can see is your pain, perhaps you're losing sight of God. Six. Pain has a way of clipping our wings so that we can't fly anymore. After a while, we forget we were ever created to fly. Seven, when Jesus became a man, he gave up his own ability to heal people and do miracles. His miracles were accomplished by Jesus's, a man-dependent, limited human being's trust in the Father God. We're all designed to live like that, out of God's life and power. Eight, God exists in three persons, so we, his creation, can also live in love and relationship, just like God does. If God didn't, we couldn't. God can't act apart from love. Nine, relationships are never supposed to be about power, and the way to avoid wanting power is to limit yourself and serve. Ten, sin is its own punishment, devouring from the inside. It's not God's purpose to punish it, it's God's joy to cure it. And I would go one step further than that. I agree with George MacDonald when George MacDonald says it's not even God's purpose to cure it, it's God's intention to destroy it because it is hurting the ones he loves. Eleven, when people choose independence over relationship, we become a danger to each other. Twelve, 
When, when Christians don't trust God, it's because they don't know they're loved by Him. They think God is not good. Uh, 57 of these things, right? Right? So, he gets to the end and he gets, uh, whoever, he or she, gets a response from somebody else who reads these things and then responds. And you'll love this. Hey, Aram. Only an unbeliever could have your clarity and insight. <laughs> Believers' minds tend to be clouded and controlled by their beliefs. Believers can't think clearly. Every bit of information is evaluated not for its truth, wisdom, or usefulness, but whether or not it's already consistent with what is already believed. You appear to have derived so much more from the shack than a lot of believers will be able to. They'll reject the insight simply because it differs from their paradigm. And they'll miss the benefits you've gained from the book. Well done. Don't ever let believers interfere with whatever your walk with God turns out to be. Is that a lot like stunning? Come on. Right? I was reading a book by Francois de Toit, some of you know. He's got one of the better definitions of an unbeliever I've ever heard. An unbeliever is anyone who disagrees with God about their true perfection revealed and redeemed in Jesus. Yeah? Come on. That's a Baxterism. Come on. Southern Mississippi boy. Right? So it's, it's, been, it's been quite a journey. And, and I get... I get to play because you know I said to the folks last night I don't think God heals us because he wants to use us I want to get rid of utilitarian language out of our conversation when it comes to relationship right I come from a sexual abuse history you think I want God to use me too I'm not thinking so right I don't think God heals us because he wants to use us I think God heals us because he loves us and then he invites us to play right there's a friend of mine, um, he's an artist, and he does hand art. Oh, he does really great painting and stuff, but he, he does these things where somebody is performing and he will make this massive big picture. Jared Emerson is his name. And, um, and I met him on, on my first and only uh, cruise I've ever been on. I was speaking on it, so I got invited on a cruise. And Kim, who I'm married to, doesn't like water. Uh, she'd almost drowned twice when she was a little girl, and so she has just this thing about water. So I took my friend Scott Klausner with me, and we go, and it's a, you know, it's a Christian music cruise kind of thing, and I'm a speaker and all this. And at the end of it, I turned to Scott, who's my buddy from Portland, and uh, our kids went to school together and stuff, and I said, so Scott, what do you think the, you know, the overall message here was, you know? He says, you know, I think the message was, you suck, so get out there and suck less. <laughs> Right? That's my religious history. Right? And, uh, and, and we were having that conversation and Jared was there and he does this, these hand paintings. I mean, they're, they're big and he does it upside down. I mean, he doesn't, he's not upside down. The artwork's upside down and then he'll flip it and you'll see this unbelievable thing. So Jared is talking to me one day and he was on the cruise and he's saying, you know, I just want to be uh, a tool used by God. And I'm going, Jared, so tell me about your relationship with your easel and your brushes. He goes, what? Well, they're your tools, right? 
So tell me, do, they, you, do, do you talk to them? Do they talk back to you and tell you stuff? And he goes, what are you talking about? I said, you don't have a relationship with tools. Right? This is about participation. This is about being in relationship. And a lot of us, we've grown up with such a distant, difficult relationship with God that it's really impinged inside our ability to have any sense of freedom. This is why the folks are mad about the shack. The ones that read it far enough, when Papa came through the door, what they don't want to acknowledge is that their hearts leaped. They don't want to acknowledge that because then their heads engaged and they were in this conflict. So they went to the only place they know where to get control in their heads. And that's the conflict that rises up all the time. And so people that are stuck in their heads, which is very, it dominates Western theology, right? We axed our hearts out long time ago. You know, you can't trust it. And so we're going to trust our depraved minds. Really? Come on. I met a gal um, because of the book. I met a lot of people because of the book. And um, actually I met her because she sent me an email. And this is, this is one of those stories, right? And uh, her name's Jeannie. Lives in just uh, outside of Atlanta. Jeannie grew up in the same church denominational background system that I did. Christian and Missionary Alliance. If anybody knows that. Big, huge missions church. I'm CMA missionary kid. Grew up in the highlands of New Guinea. And... Um, and so, you know, it's very fundamental uh, Protestant. Part of the holiness movement. There were two, uh, if you look back at the history, there was this, the holiness movement that kind of split into two branches. There was the Foursquare, which were the more Pentecostal types, and CMA, which turned out to be the more Baptist types. Right? And uh, so, uh, but it's very performance-oriented, very... Um, I mean, uh, understand that I'm talking about my people and they've done some remarkable and beautiful things. But their emphasis on missions pretty much slaughtered my generation of kids. Right? And narrative makes a huge difference in a story. What's the narrative here? Right? So let me tell you the dominant narrative of growing up inside a missions organization. It was the story of Abraham and Isaac. And the narrative was so God doesn't really know if Abraham really loves him, so he requires Abraham to sacrifice that which is most precious to prove to God that he is willing to kill his own children in order to be right with God. That was the narrative. So the question to the missionary parents, my parents who are in their 20s, right? They're kids. And the question was, are you willing to sacrifice your children on the altar of the gospel? based on the narrative of Abraham and Isaac. Now, I don't believe that that's the narrative anymore. Now, it took a while to get there, but you know, you grow up in a way that you think that's the only way that it possibly could be, because that's what you were told. And you can't ask, or else you get a particular verse quoted at you. <laughs> Rebellion is worse than witchcraft, right? So, that was my motto growing up. And uh, So, uh, you want to know what the real narrative for that story is? An alternative narrative? Which I think is true? Okay. Because a lot of us grew up with that thing and it just hung over us. Right? And from that we get the idea that, oh, God's the kind of father that will kill his children to be right with other people. Now, 
um, especially his own, the, the one who's most precious to him, the most innocent. Right? This kind of mentality is demonic. I want you to know. Let me give you an example. We, um, through Andrew, our son, we now have a seventh grandchild. Her name's Maisie. She's from Uganda. She arrived two months ago. She's 22 months old. In Uganda, you can go um, on the streets and you can buy a child for 80 bucks US. And the witch doctor will cut up that child into pieces and put them in the cornerstones of new buildings in order to, um, to protect those buildings and enterprises, the businesses, from evil spirits. 80 bucks US. Now here's, here's the demonic, real demonic part of that. You think that's bad? If they steal a child and they find out, find out the child has a defect, they will let the child go. It has to be a perfect child. And there's a lot of this kind of stuff. This is part of the world we live in, right? And it raises some really great questions. That's why the shack raised some really great questions, because it involved the loss between a parent and a child. Andrew was over there trying to get Maisie through the red tape for eight weeks. While he was there, six children went missing within a one square mile area, and they found four of the bodies while he was there. So we're not, this was, you know, they came home two months ago. So it's, this is not like, uh, this is make-believe stuff, right? Okay, here's the narrative. You do know that Abraham was a moon worshiper. That's where he started. He was in Ur of the Chaldees. There was no seminary. There was no library. There was one down in North Africa, but he had no access to it. Um, there is no, uh, he didn't have the, even the Torah. He didn't have the five books of Moses to read, right? He knows nothing. He's a guy that worships Nanu and Ningal, the moon goddess and god. That's the dominant deities of Ur of the Chaldees. And he starts to hear voices who say, get out of town, right? I mean, on a scale, if you took a, a relative scale from one to, uh, or from A to Z, where is Abram? Like A, right? Or B, maybe. Do you understand? So, the, one of the beautiful things about God, and this helps us with our conversation about the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, is that God comes and meets us, but He doesn't meet us, if we're at B, He's not going to meet us at M or Q or S. And we get all ticked off that we don't know how to jump in between. He's going to meet us at C. And He's going to say, come on. Let me tell you a little more. Because when you're at B, you can't handle D. Yeah. It's too much. It rocks your paradigm too much. Right? So God's going to bring you along just a bit at a time. And you see this progressive illumination throughout Scripture. Now, Abram lives in a world where not one deity did not require child sacrifice as the ultimate... Um, sense of worship. Every deity on the planet at the time Abram was coming out of Ur of the Chaldees as the ultimate sense of worship to appease the God required the sacrifice of an innocent child. So what does God do? Abram's stuck at B. He comes to C. He says, hey, 
Abram, sacrifice your son. Okay. I don't know how God's going to do this, but He promised me this, you know. So, but I'll do it. Why? Because everybody does it. What's the narrative? You're at B, I'm at C. And I'm going to teach you one thing about me right off the bat. I do not require the sacrifice of children. And if I need anything, I can provide it myself. Let me introduce to you a new name. Jehovah Jireh. First time it's used is in that story. God provides. Come on. And you can feel it. The tuning, in, tuning uh, fork in your heart just went off. Right? Because you know there's something about that that's true. God doesn't require child sacrifice. Religious systems do. Political systems do. Military systems do. Right? Hierarchical systems do. God does not. And so God is teaching Abram, let me tell you about who I am. I am not like any, any other deity that exists on this planet that people have you know, imagined into existence. So, I meet a gal or I'm through the internet on email. She sends me an email and tells me her story. Her name's Jeannie. Jeannie grew up in the same denominational. But here's the thing about denominational systems. You can have a Baptist church and you will have a, such a wide variety of what actually people think. The shack has become this huge hit in the Mormon church. I mean, this, they, sell it in, they sell it in their bookstores. They can't keep it on the shelf. I did a women's conference in Salt Lake City that was 60% Mormon, right? And, and I'm going, you do know that this is kind of like an utter violation of your theology, right? Well, it, it just proves that religion, for the most part, is cultural. It's got nothing to do with what you believe. It's just what you're used to, right? And, um, and so it's... It's like, really? And it opens up the conversation. So, um, Jeannie grew up in a church where part of what they communicated was um, that, uh, that you're bad. I mean, that's what the basic fundamental building block is. Let me deviate for a second. Which I do a lot, by the way. If you haven't noticed, I totally trust the Holy Spirit to sweep these things back up and put, make some sense out of them, you know? So, I don't ever plan what I'm doing. So, hey, here we go. So, a year ago, I'm, a year ago right now, I was in Enid, Oklahoma, and I was speaking at Emmanuel Baptist Church, which is a mega Baptist church. Big, huge church. Pastor's name is Wade Burleson. He loves me. It doesn't hurt that his dad's name is William Paul Burleson. Right? who is Rick uh, Warren's mentor. And Wade is a force inside the Southern Baptist Convention. And Wade loves me. He loves the shack. I was there for the shack and I just went there for Crossroads a year ago. And um, um, Wade says to me, uh, the first time we met, when he was driving, we were driving in from the airport, he says... Um, Hey, Paul, you do know why you are in so much hot water with um, my people, right? And I said, well, I, I know some of the reasons. He said, let me tell you something. Now, this is a force within the Southern Baptist Convention, right? And so he, one, inviting me into his community of faith is, is a little bit of a stretch anyway. Because I had been just kind of hammered 
um, in a public forum inside that community already. Not his, but inside the con uh, convention. And um, they'd actually tried to pass um, a motion on the floor to ban the shack as heresy at the national convention. And it was a group of pastors inside the convention that refused to hear the, the motion. And, and so there's all this stuff going on. And um, um, so, uh, in fact, it's because... Here's this hilarious. There is a particular bookstore that if you go to buy the book in their bookstore, they'll give you a disclaimer you have to read before you're able to buy the book, right? <laughs> Some of you know, may know about this. No. It's hilarious. So, um, but for a while, they removed all the books from their books, bookshelves and they just put them in, their, you know, in the back room and you had to ask for them and then you had to read the disclaimer before you could buy the book. And... Uh, and I said, why are you doing that? Just hide them inside your Playboys. And so, uh, <laughs> hey, the more legalistic you become in your sense of relationship with God, the more likelihood, if you're a male, that you are involved in pornography. Just saying. There's a whole link between disappearing in your head and the split between your head and your heart that creates this vacuum within which comes addiction. Right? And you have to hide it because everything's about performance anyway. So um, Wade says, you know why you're in so much trouble? I said, he, he said, here's what my people do not understand about the shack. And where you and I share something, he said, you have a high view of Jesus. You have a high view of the incarnation. You have a high view of the atonement. And you have a high view of the Trinity. And they don't see that. They don't understand. And I'm sitting there in the car... Um, someone who is in this role inside that group of our, our family conversation. And he's affirming what I already know about, but so many of those folks, they haven't even taken the time to see it, right? I have a very high view of Jesus, much higher than generally is in the church. It's true. And for him to acknowledge that was just a big arm around my shoulder. Do you understand? So on this trip, he brought it up again. This is a year ago. And he says, So Paul, I watch the way you love people. And you are entirely consistent between the way you talk about your relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and how you treat people. And he said, I come from a Western, evangelical, post-reformational, dualistic frame of reference, theologically. What am I still missing? And I said, I said, Wade, I watch you too. And you may have an issue in your head still, but you don't love that way. You love way beyond where you're stuck in your head, which is true. Uh, and, um, and he said, so what am I, what's, what's my disconnect here? High view of Jesus, high view of the atonement, high view of the Trinity, high view of the incarnation. And it's one of those moments where the Holy Spirit gives you something to say that makes you sound brilliant. <laughs> right? And that's the Holy Spirit, let me tell you. She's not only a redeeming genius, she loves to make other people look good. I mean, I'm serious. Uh, how many times have you been in a conversation where you're saying something to somebody and you're thinking, this is so good. I should be taking notes, but it would look awkward. You know what I'm talking about, right? He says, what am I missing? High view of the atonement, Jesus, incarnation. I said... You have a low view of humanity. And he went, Oh my gosh, that's exactly right. 
If you start with a low view of humanity, you have nothing you can build on. This is Francois' statement. An unbeliever is anyone who disagrees with God. God's point of view about the perfection and redemption that's revealed in Jesus. Theirs. Who they are. Right? And, uh, and, he said, and I said, a low view of humanity. Well, that low view of humanity dominates our Western conversation. We begin with depravity and separation. And then try to build a house of cards theologically on top of that. It is incoherent. And it doesn't work. All you're going to end up is in performance. So this gal grew up inside the same one as I did, where you begin by being the slime and the dregs of creation. And God, out of kindness, reaches down and lifts you up, but he's still ticked off at you. And as long as Jesus stands between you and him, you're okay. But if Jesus goes to the bathroom, you're toast. <laughs> right? And, and Jesus came, Jesus did come to save me, but he came to save me from God the Father. A lot of us grew up with that. So, Jeannie grows up in the church and she's told that when bad things happen to you, it's because you're bad, you know, and, and God has to punish you or He has to set the balances of justice straight and all this stuff. And um, um, she was even told by her parents that she was God's punishment to them. We know how to twist things, you know? Trying to be consistent with our theological convictions. And eventually it becomes disastrous. Well, she's, a, she's the pastor's child who believes that she's bad. And so when bad things happen to you, it's because you're bad. And God's got to, you know, and after all, she is God's punishment to her own parents. What did that produce in her? Well, for some people, they just bail out, become the younger brother, go find an addiction to get lost inside it so they don't feel pain anymore, right? Then there's the older brothers, like me, who become these religious performers. And that's what she did. Every time the door opened at the church, she was there. She was in the music team, she went on missions, she did everything. And then in her 30s was diagnosed with stage 4 colorectal cancer. And she dropped into a massive depression. And you can understand why. The question at the core is this. What is so abhorrent about me that you have to judge me with stage 4 colorectal cancer? Right? And she disappeared inside her depression. Her husband John couldn't reach her. Nobody could reach her. She was gone. 2 o'clock in the morning in, in her community of faith, there's another family. Um, not, I don't think they went to the same church per se, but they, they knew her and they were friends with her and her husband John. It's an elderly couple, Jim and Dolores Sunda. Now here is a kicker. Uncle Jim and Aunt Dee were missionaries in New Guinea. In fact, my parents opened up a station in the highlands of New Guinea called Pyramid and Aunt Dee and Uncle Jim were the second family onto that station. We were the first, they were the second. I grew up with them. I grew up with their kids. So, I didn't know anything about this at the time, right? So, Anne Dee wakes up in the, early in the morning and she's got a sense that 
Here's what she hears the Lord say to her. I want you to take a copy of the shack over uh, to Jeannie and I want you to read her the first five chapters because she won't make it. She will not get through it unless somebody reads it to her. So she and Uncle Jim um, call him up and say, can we come over? We want to spend a little bit of time with you. And, and later, when Jeannie writes me, she says, the only reason that I, I abided this was because I knew they loved me. That's all. I, I didn't want to be there. I didn't want them to be there. But I knew that they loved me. And so she said, so, and um, Aunt Dee tells me this later, uh, Jeannie sits there uh, on the living room couch with her arms folded and her head down, you know, lost in her depression. As, as Jim and Dolores and John take turns reading through the first five chapters of The Shack. And you know, you've read, you read it, you know that it's wrenching, right? It's, um, it's not graphic, but it's very, very hard and very real. And, um, and so they get through this and Jeannie stands up and walks into the bathroom followed by Dolores and in the bathroom Jeannie falls apart. Just falls apart. Um, Jim and Dolores had to leave for another appointment and they left the book so that John and Jeannie could finish reading it. And over the next three days John and Jeannie read the book out loud to each other. And it literally yanked Jeannie out of her depression. Why? Because it gave her an alternative to the God she had grown up with. One that maybe she could begin to trust. And this alternative perspective matched her deepest longings. Right? So, Jeannie sends me a letter, an email, and she puts this whole story in there. I hadn't even heard about this, right? So, Jeannie is the one that sends me an email, and she says, she writes down this whole scenario, and then she says um, two stunning things. One is, when I was growing up, she said, in the church, when I was growing up, I didn't really know what the difference between God and Satan was. Except, with Satan I always knew where I stood. There was more certainty about the character and nature of God than there was about the character, uh, about the character and nature of Satan than there was about the character and nature of God. At least with Satan she knew where she stood. Which meant she didn't know where she stood with God. And that's so unveiling of the lies that at the core of what we create our edifices around, right? The second thing she said was, Paul, it's important that you know I wasn't afraid to die. I was terrified of seeing the look of disgust on his face when we met. And see, there are some of us who know exactly what she's talking about. You know, God gets to put up with me because Jesus happens to like me. You know, I get invited to God's house. Uh, Jesus invites me there and catches God by surprise, you know. And God the Father comes out from the kitchen and sees me and goes, Hey, Jesus, can I talk to you for a minute here? And I hear them. What's he doing here? 
Well, Dad, I invited him. Well, you know, when he comes here, he just makes a mess. I mean, he just leaves the toilet seat up and he drags crap in from the outside. But Dad, I love him. Okay, one, one more chance. But if he screws up this time, he's not welcome back here. Right? A lot of us, that's the scenario that was in our own hearts. I got to be with Jeannie physically, be with her three different times. The last time, two weeks before she died. And for two hours, I sit there holding her hand. And yes, everybody in the world was praying for her. Right? And for two hours, we sat there, held hands. John would come in and out. There were people in the other room. And Jeannie was about 80 pounds left. And I have never seen the glory of God shine through the broken bits of a body the way that I got to behold inside of Jeannie. She was living. She was not afraid to walk through that veil. She was ready. She knew who was waiting for her just on the outside, just on, just on the other side of that screen. And she was not afraid to walk into their embrace. That's holy ground. Come on. Yeah? Other people's stories. I get to participate because I wrote a story for my kids. I mean, how cool is that? A lot of what we believed about the character and nature of God was simply a lie. Jesus came to tell us the truth. And we still didn't believe Him. And we've been fighting those lies now for a couple thousand years. And I have a sense that there's a rising tide against that kind of lie about the character of the Father. And I'm thrilled about that. It took me all of 50 years to wipe the face of my own Father off the face of God, which you understand. I'm thrilled to be a part of this. Come on. I don't understand it. I don't even want to understand it. Took me all of 50 years to become a child. I'm not going back to being an adult. It's too much work. Yeah. Okay. We got, um, I'm sure that clock's wrong. I mean, we, I didn't even know we had daylight savings time until I got an extra hour. <laughs> so uh, we've got, you know, 15 minutes or so or whatever. And so let's have some Q&R, right? Whatever you want to ask uh, about me or the books or... Whatever, whatever, whatever. Um, wide open. It doesn't have to be deep and theological. and It can be just whatever is on your, on your heart to ask. And we'll just explore that for a bit and take a break and then come back this evening. Yeah. On Crossroads, I know on the shack I heard you speak before where you talked about different people um, or different uh, people in the shack. Yeah. Who was the person that was... Who's Tony? Yeah. Oh, in Crossroads, the main character's name is Anthony Spencer. Tony. And uh, when I write, I write um, to explore questions. That's why I write. I don't write with an agenda. I'm not trying you know, to get people to move from one point to another point. I'm looking at a question and going, well, this is a great question. Let's explore it and see what happens, right? And so there's a whole set of questions in the shack, like a lot of ones you're not allowed to ask growing up in the church. And, and I wanted to explore questions about, so who's God? Especially when things go wrong. And when I wrote this, I'm thinking, what if this kind of scenario happens in this world to one of my kids and I'm not there? What would I tell them? 
what would I want to have said to them? And that's what, I, that's what I was going after inside the shack about the character of God. Let me tell you about the God I didn't grow up with. The one who actually showed up and healed my heart. Right? In Crossroads, the question is, okay, so how does grace or change or transformation get inside the self-created fortresses that resist grace and transformation and relationship? Tony is a despicable human being. How does change get inside that? Right? Mackenzie is likable. Tony is not. So the question is, what did I base that character on? You know, well, part of it is based on me because I know myself really well, right? The biggest issue in Tony's life is the issue of belonging. Everything got sort of destructed as a child because of loss. And I'm a missionary kid, and the biggest question for third culture kids like me, third culture kids are kids that grow up in a different culture than their parents, are then transferred to a new culture where they don't fit, and then they're moved back to their original culture where they don't fit there anymore either, right? So the big question that haunts them is, where do I belong? And if they don't find someone to belong to, they never belong anywhere. Now, the beautiful gift of third culture kids is that they're naturally outside the box and they're fluid. They have a fluid capability of moving between cultures. And they see things from outside. Now, if they haven't dealt with their own darkness, right, that becomes weaponized, right? And especially if they're short, like five foot six. <laughs> You know, I've lost all my fist fights, but let me tell you, I can destroy a 300-pound man with well-placed words. I can hide knives inside words. It's part of my survival skills. Right? If I was in a group of a bunch of third culture kids and there were like 50 of them there inside of a group of about you know, 250, and I knew they were there, and somebody asked a question about third culture kids. And I said, here, let me... Let me easily explain to you what this is like and why, what this, why this matters. And I said, okay, I know there's a bunch of you missionary kids here. I want to ask out loud a question, count to three, and then wherever you are sitting in this room, answer the question. Just out loud when I count to three. Here's the question. What is the most difficult question anybody ever asks you? One, two, three. And from all over the room, unanimously came, where are you from? Because we don't know. We don't know what you're asking us. Are you asking us where we grow up or where are we living now? Or So Tony has got this issue. He comes out of the foster care system. Same kind of you know attachment issues, right? Now he's a despicable human being because he's created a fortress inside his own heart. And the question is, how do we get how does God get inside of that self-protected place? I base Tony in part from, because I know that whole sense, but my characters tend to be a compilation. Tony does this massively uh, destructive thing early in the story, right? Relationally destructive. That's based on a true story. I worked for the guy that did that. Um, he divorced his wife, then wooed her for a couple years in order to win her back and divorce her a second time. That was the sole purpose. Right? Because winning mattered to him. Right? And so I built a character around that. 
Because I didn't want you to say, oh, he's a good guy. I wanted you to say, I really don't like this guy. Right? And then you begin to watch. And Crossroads becomes the metaphor for... Well, we run into Crossroads all the time. Things that challenge us to take another look at what we're doing and why we're doing them. You know, a little bit of self-assessment. And, um, and every day we run into Crossroads. And, and part of this whole lie about the fact that you know, you're depraved so you don't really matter, that lie gets us to begin to believe that the choices we make really don't matter either. And we can become very self-destructive and destructive to relationships and other people fundamentally because we don't think that we, we're important enough that our decisions actually matter. And we run into crossroads. And some of them are big. Some of them are little. Every day we have the choice to forgive or not. That's a crossroad. Right? Every day um, to let go of a, a hurt or to actually expose something in our own hearts or whatever. And do you hear heaven? <laughs> Nobody's. I'm not moving, man. I'll wait until that thing goes off. So <laughs> they can't tell. So um, it's so hilarious to me. I have six kids. Come on, we have a great time with this kind of stuff. Um, so the sometimes you run into a big crossroads, big ones like the loss of a career, or the death of someone that you actually care about, or um, uh, exposure of an affair, or an exposure of an addiction, you know, where suddenly your world is turned upside down. And it's really an invitation at that point. And, and most of the time, God's got nothing to do with it, and neither does the devil. We can create enough destruction in our own lives that nobody else has to be really involved. You know, I'm serious. We build our own house of cards and then we blow them down, right? And uh, and then it's nice to be able to blame somebody like the devil for it. But let me tell you, you know, why should he spend the energy when you've already done it? You know, so it's 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 one of those crazy things. Now I'll, there are definitely things that other people have done to us that were not in our control that were wrong and that kind of tore the fabric of our own souls and it's going to take some time to work that stuff out. But these major crossroads give us an opportunity to put the brakes on and stop. But, you know, Tony has a tendency of just running right through the stop signs and he's after the next sale, the next success. And I wrap that. Now his crossroads that he really runs into is a cerebral hemorrhage. I mean, there's not a lot you can do about that, you know? And so he ends up in this space between life and death. And it's the space that Dickens is trying to get at in Scrooge. It's the space that Lewis tries to go after in The Great Divorce. There's the space in here. And I, I've been around a lot of near-death experiences and stories about comas and stuff like that. There is so much more going on. I'll, t I'll tell you, you want to hear one little story? This is awesome. I have a, uh, my sister, my family, my parents' side lives up in British Columbia. And, uh, and there is a, um, um, my sister is a nurse and my mom is a nurse. And, um, and my sister had been working for a particular doctor who had moved from South Africa. And this doctor, um, his specialty was uh, working with um, terminal patients. You know? And so he was with them through the process of dying. And 
um, bet somewhere between South Africa and British Columbia, he had a massive encounter with Jesus. He didn't understand it, he didn't have a religious background, didn't know what it meant, but he had an encounter. And so inside of that encounter, he had decided that he would try to do something to help uh, in the process of people that he was working with who were dying. And so he determined that he would pray with people right before they passed. Right? He would just go in um, before they passed and uh, he would uh, put his hands on them and he would pray. And he said, I had no idea what I was doing. Right? It's just like, I just felt this nudge to do this. And he said, so what happened was, um, I kept all this secret, you know, and I hadn't told anybody about it, but I would, I would watch and when I knew somebody was close to dying, I would find an opportunity and I would go pray with them, for them. Most of them, he said, were in comas and stuff, so you know, it wasn't like they knew what I was doing. That's his, his words. So there was this one particular elderly lady, and her respirations were down to one to two a minute, right? Which means you are right on the edge. And she's in a coma, and, uh, and been that way for some time. And he, dis he was finished his shift, and... Um, so, but he decided he wanted to pray for her. So he walked through the curtain into her room and stopped because her family had already gathered around her and he didn't want to interrupt them. So he, they didn't even notice he was there. He, had backed, he backed his way back through the curtain, closed the curtain, and he turned around and with his back to them, whispered a prayer for her. He said, whatever I could, you know, God bless her in this time of transition, or whatever he says. He then goes to the nurse's station and he signs out and he, and he says, let me sign off her certificate, her death certificate because, and this is not uncommon, because she's going to die and I'll just sign it off and then you can put in TOD, time of death, uh, when she passes. No big deal. So he goes home, comes back the next morning to do rounds and as he's doing rounds he walks into this room thinking it's going to be empty and she's sitting up in bed. <laughs> And she does this. <laughs> and he walks over to her. Now, he's telling this story around a little circle of friends who had gathered. I was there, right? So he, he walks over to her and she says to him, Son, that was the worst prayer I've ever heard. <laughs> she says, So I asked God if I could stay an extra day and teach you how to pray. He says, so she taught me how to pray and the next day she passed. Aww. Right? <laughs> One of my favorite things in all of scripture, especially coming from my conservative fundamentalist background, is the fact that Jesus goes with a couple of his friends, three of them, up to the top of this little mountain and he talks to dead people. <laughs> I mean, not just like recently dead. These guys have been dead for like hundreds of years dead. And this is not in the parables, right? This is not something he's making up, right? I mean, think about it. This is in the historical section of the Gospels, right? This is like it actually happens. He goes to the mountain and talks to dead people. And not only that, they knew who they were. And not only that, 
They had come to talk to Jesus about what he was going to be facing in Jerusalem. Specifically. How weird is that? Right? Well, it begins to give you a sense that there is way more going on here than what meets the eye. We're involved in something that is massively larger than this particular little piece of time that we're in. And part of this means that we develop a theology based on 58-year-old white guys who've lived long enough to develop a theology. Right? But it only works for us. I'm serious. We don't have an answer to little babies that die or uh, are aborted. We don't have an answer to my cousin who killed herself last December because she was schizophrenic and got tired of hearing the voices. Right? Or autism. Or we don't, we don't know what to do with this because what? They didn't live long enough so they could figure this out? And they didn't know about the magic words that they could pray and it would make everything okay? And they couldn't put a complete sentence together inside their own brain structures? What does that mean? Where's our theology? Who's God? Right? All of those things actually matter in this conversation. This little space. Okay. Well, that was a good question. Uh, let me... What we'll do is we'll start with questions tonight. Alright? Okay. So let me finish with one more little story. Because it ties right into what we're talking about. I met a gal in Jackson, Mississippi, and she's a nurse. She flew in the military helicopters in Afghanistan, and she volunteered with the choppers that she knew would get shot at and likely shot down because she wanted to die. Right? She wanted to die. And there comes a point where those of us who've got real big damage in our histories, we find a way to do, at least do something good. And a lot of times we end up in a helping profession of one sort or another. Just to try to balance how badly we believe about ourselves. And, um, and you know, in some of our religious structures, you can't kill yourself without being in more trouble. So you, you, know, you put yourself in harm's way because then you can go out in a way that's sort of justified. Weird, but it's true. So... What she, reason she wanted to die is as a child, as a little girl, from the time she was about five or six to the time she was about 14, um, sexual rape happened to her on a weekly basis, her dad and her uncle, as she calls him, my dad's father. Right? And uh, her way of dealing with the intense degree of, of shame that existed in her own heart was to go into the medical field and then to go into the military as a, as a nurse and then in the military try to die. And um, over in Afghanistan there's a book that's going through the military called The Shack, right? <laughs> I met a guy up in British Columbia I was speaking at this thing and I sit down he's a young man in his 20s and I, you know, I sat next to him and he looks at me and he says, would it be okay if I gave you a hug? I said, yeah, absolutely. If you know me, you know I hug everybody. It's like, hey, I know the world needs more hugs, so let's start here, you know? And, um, and so he gives me a hug and he begins, to, he begins to weep. I'm going, what's going on, man? He said, I just came back from Afghanistan, military. He said, you know, I'd heard about your book. And I kind of wanted to get a copy of it, but, you know, 
It's not like I can go down to a Barnes and Noble. I mean, you know, we're out on. And he's Canadian uh, forces, and he said we're out on a recon mission, and we take over this way out in the middle of nowhere. We take over this uh, compound, and we're there for three days. You know, and it's 100 degrees outside, and it's all dust and sand and. In this compound, I walk around the corner, and there in the dirt is laying a copy of the shack. So I sat and read it, and uh, he said, two weeks later, my best friend was killed by an IED. He said, I can't imagine that I would have made it if I hadn't read your book. Right? And so the book's been going through the military, and she runs into a copy of it, and she gets to the section on forgiveness. And she realizes, I'm in prison. I've been defined by this my entire life. I need to forgive my dad. At the same time, she gets an email from state, from the state side, saying, from her sister, saying, you're the nurse in our family. Dad, is, dad has just been diagnosed. He has six weeks to live. You should take a leave and come home and take care of him while he dies. Well, she sees this in conjunction to working through this book as, oh my gosh, this is an opportunity, right? So she does get a leave to go back and take care of her dad. But by the time she gets to her dad, her dad is dropped into a coma. And so she waits. Because a lot of times, and I know this from personal experience with Kim's dad, who lived with us for 17 years and died on his 84th birthday in 2002, his name's Willard. We called him Willie. The Willie in the shack is my father-in-law. And, um, and a lot of times they'll come out of their coma right before they pass. Well, there's a scale. I mean, there's a bunch of different scales on coma, but there's one where you can measure what's going on in terms of responses, and you can see if they're going deeper into the coma or not. And in this case, um, he was sliding deeper into the coma, and she realized he's not coming back. So at 2 o'clock in the morning, she pulls up a chair next to his bed and she takes his hand in hers and she says this to him. Daddy, I'm here to ask for both of our forgiveness. And she starts from the beginning. This is what you did to me. This is why I've never been able to consistently have a relationship. This is why I trust no one. This is why I want to die. And she begins walking through event by event by event and what it meant for her. And then she started over and she says, okay. And she named it again and she says, for this I forgive you. For this I forgive you. For this I forgive you. And she said, Paul, I'm holding his hand and suddenly tears come gushing down his face. Not a little tear. He is weeping and he never comes out of the coma. She said, there's not a person on this planet who can tell me that major things were not transacted during those moments. Right? Sometimes you don't get to talk to the person who did the damage. Sometimes they don't even care that they did the damage. Sometimes you've got to go with a group of your friends and you've got to put a chair in the middle of the room and you've got to sit there and you've got to talk to them. Can't do it by yourself. But you've got to get it out. 
the unconfessed, you know, the things that are hidden in the heart are the unhealed. There is something that's going on that's always bigger. The choices you make actually matter. You actually matter. What you do ripples through the cosmos in ways you have no clue. What you do in secret will be shouted from the rooftops. Why? Because it matters. It takes billions of us, each uniquely crafted, and yes, uniquely damaged. You cannot compare your pain with anybody else's. Christians are really good at, wow, I've never been through what you're doing, so they'll deny having to deal the, you know, do their own work. You can't compare anybody else's pain with yours, nor can you compare anybody else's process of healing with yours. You're uniquely crafted, you're uniquely damaged, and only God who knows how you're put together can climb inside that mess and begin to unwind it in a way that doesn't hurt you more. Who you are matters. An unbeliever is anyone who doesn't agree with God's declaration about their perfection and redemption in Jesus. You have never not been in Jesus. Nothing that has come into being has come into being apart from Him. John 1. Everything is by, for, through, and in Him. And 2 Corinthians is when He died, it all died. The Gospel is wake up. Begin to agree with God about who you are. Yeah, it requires some work. All the best art requires work. Amen? Amen. Amen.